Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Agent Seth and Agent Justin from the Extra Environmentals. We're here to ask you a few questions, ma'am. Please open the door. Are you trick-or-treaters? It's very close to Halloween. No, ma'am. We're here on official Extra Environmentalist business. We found this book that offers scientific evidence of supernormal human abilities, and we are looking for the illustrious author. Oh, you must mean Dr. Dean Radin, the author of the book Supernormal, Science, Yoga, and the Evidence for Extraordinary Psychic Abilities. I finished reading that book yesterday. Would you like some candy, young man? No, ma'am. We're not interested in candy. We're interested in questioning the author to find out whether doing a certain yoga posture will give us the ability for telepathy. Well, you two young men are in the wrong place. I've been doing yoga all day, and now I'm tired, so I'm going to take a nap. Well, thank you very much for your time, ma'am. It seems that you're very busy. We'll leave you to your, your own devices. Oh, my own devices, indeed. I've got so many devices, like an iPad, Well, Agent Seth, we're going to have to get back to the recording studio to jump into this episode of The Extra Environmentalist. But for the Halloween edition, we have Dr. Dean Radin on his book, Supernormal, talking about the scientific evidence for supernormal capabilities. And we're going to start out with Dean as he describes why it's so difficult to change minds with evidence. There are vested interests, and our interests drive how we perceive information and what we decide to do about it. To paraphrase something, I think that Mark Twain said that it's difficult to get a man to change his opinion when his job depends on it. And so this is, this is true in every domain of human affairs. We treat ideas as though they're part of our physical body. And so if somebody starts challenging that idea, it feels like a physical attack. And so... We, it's resisted, especially when it comes in with interests having to do with job security and making a living and all that, then it can be very, very difficult to get people to pay attention. Now, we see this kind of thing happening over and over again in the political sphere, in the economic sphere, in the religious sphere. These, these are common themes throughout human existence where people do not want to give up that idea, that, that narrative that they had built so carefully mm -hmm. over their entire lifetimes. What kind of form does it take 
with your research? Do people discount it? Do they call it names? What kind of form does it take with you? I have three constituencies in a sense. General public, and I'm talking specifically about general public that might or might not be religious, but they're not very strongly religious. So like the secular general public. The surveys always show over many years that roughly 60% of the general public is interested in, in psi phenomena because it happens to them or it happens to somebody that they know and they trust. They pay attention to it and it doesn't really challenge their scientific worldview because most people don't have a scientific worldview. And it doesn't challenge their religious beliefs either. So they just look at it as something strange and, and maybe interesting. Then there's the scientific community, which because scientists are human too, then we know that 60% of scientists are also very interested in these kinds of phenomena because it happens to them, but they've learned not to talk about it because within the scientific community, you have 20 years of training that either don't mention this at all, or more likely that there are theories that create the scientific worldview don't yet accommodate why any of this stuff should be true so you don't talk about it. And the third class are people who are very religious, and about half of them love this and half of them hate it. They either love it because they think it's a reflection of divine gifts, or they hate it because they see it as a reflection of the demonic. And so each one of these communities responds differently, and the way that they talk to the communities is different as well. I'm really interested in understanding why it is that established scientists seem to have such a problem with these phenomena, especially when you can demonstrate really interesting effects that come about that are more than statistically significant, that are more statistically significant than a lot of social phenomena, as you demonstrate and write about in the book. Why is it that so many scientists so vehemently reject even talking about these issues? And even I remember reading in the book one example where you gave a presentation in front of a classroom and the students were really interested about all the experiments that you summarized for them. But then the professor then went around and said, you know, all of this is just BS. You should not pay attention to this at all. This is how you end your career as you talk about these things. Well, it's a combination of factors. From one factor, it's very clear within the academic system, and this is true almost worldwide, that academia lives on ideas. It's all about your ideas. You defend your ideas, you're promoted by them, you're, you don't get tenure or you do get tenure depending on your ideas. So if you live in the world of ideas, a lot of it is driven by and sustained by theories about how the ideas stick together. So among the people in the humanities, it's not such a big deal. Humanities is is interested in, in a wide range of topics that are not strongly pushed by science theory. But within the sciences, you have a whole set of assumptions that have been developed over a couple of centuries. So they're, they didn't just fall out of the sky, they, they work pretty well. And the assumptions are taught to generations of students and the assumptions harden into dogma. And just like any dogma, if somebody is presenting something that challenges the dogma, then whatever is presented, regardless of the level of empirical evidence, it's got to be wrong. There's got to be a mistake somewhere. It's got to be motivated incorrectness in some way. And so in the face of seeing evidence that is very uncomfortable, I have seen academics jump up red-faced and shouting, saying this is impossible, you're all fraudulent and all that, because as I said before, it's as though you're attacking the person. Their ideas and the person themselves are not really that different. So it's like you've attacked them with a knife 
and of course they're going to respond accordingly. This is one reason why for students you don't see this level of emotionality typically. What you see is uh, very high curiosity because what could be more curious than psychic phenomena that are real and it's because they haven't yet fully incorporated the ideas into their own identity. But the older people get in general and the older academics get, it's also true, they do identify with their ideas and so you cannot attack them. It's really that simple. And unfortunately, a lot of students will very quickly learn what the teachers want and they will give them that and then they'll forget that they were accommodating the professor and they will absorb it as well. It takes an unusual student to remember that what they're being taught are theories and theories change constantly, which is why our textbooks are revised all the time. And even a more unusual student that has learned the lesson that these are theories, we have to challenge authority because authority is shown to be wrong again and again, but at exactly the same time, learn how to get along with others. You need somebody who's both a rebel and also able to accommodate the social norms at the same time. And that's even more rare. <laughs> it's very rare. And so often we, we come up with these answers to questions that we just kind of repopulate with different information as we go along and fit them into our, our worldview. And that's a very, very common thing. But let's back up for a second. You're a electrical engineer. How did you get into this field? Did you have a experience that kind of set you down this path or did you just find overwhelming scientific evidence that just made you feel like this is the direction to go in? If you look at at formal training, I'm a musician and an electrical engineer and an experimental psychologist. Among other things, it shows that I'm interested in lots of different things. And I think the reason why I've been doing this kind of work for quite a while now is not that unusual. It's a question I get asked a lot by both technical and popular audiences. And the assumption is that I must come from a family that had lots of psychic experiences or I had something myself. And that's not the case. I don't recall any psychic experiences growing up. I didn't come from a family that where anybody ever talked about this stuff. But what I did notice is I read a lot of science fiction when I was younger and also a lot of uh, fairy tales and mythology and the whole fantastic literature. I read all of it, basically. And I noticed that one of the themes that repeats again and again in these, these stories is that there's something about the mind that is more powerful than we usually allow ourselves to think about. And I was simply curious about that. Well, why is it that these magical ideas keep popping up again and again? From a, an adult's perspective, it's magical thinking and wish fulfillment and all of those usual explanations. And I was willing to buy that as an explanation. I didn't know any better reason to, to say that it wasn't right until one day when I was a teenager, and I, I discovered that there was a, a discipline within science that was using the tools of science to test in the laboratory whether some of these things were actually true or not. And that appealed to me. The engineer part of me was saying, okay, now I can test something. I can do something and see if this is really true. And I don't have to take somebody's word for it. So I started doing experiments when I was about 14. And I learned very quickly that just doing the experiment is fun. And if you get a result that's unexpected, that's even more fun. So I was fortunately very early on able to do experiments and was getting results. And, and basically that's what hooked me. By the time I went into college, I realized that I would love to be able to do this as a profession, but there is no profession. So I had to figure out a way of being able to do this professionally, and it took a while, but now for the last 20 years, that's what I've been doing. 
in speaking about the profession side of it, there are a lot of people, as you mentioned, who are interested in psi phenomena. The amount of people in, in the public are, are very interested about it, and students are very interested in it. But it's very hard to get research funding to do these kinds of studies. Could you talk a little bit about what it's like to get funding to do studies like this on these topics that don't normally fall into National Science Foundation grants or necessarily what foundations are, are willing to fund? How do you get funding and how do you put these studies together? Well, fortunately, because the majority of the population thinks that these things are interesting, there are foundations that will support this kind of research. Just in the United States alone, private foundations give out over $12 billion a year. So a large chunk of what we do then is pay close attention to what foundations are interested in these topics. And then you figure out either from the program officers, maybe the president of the foundation, what angle are they interested in in particular? And then you see whether what you're doing can fit into their interests. So the game is basically like matchmaking. You have certain ideas that you want to follow. They have certain ideas that they want to fund. And it's a matter of how do you fit them together so both sides are happy with what you end up with. And virtually all of my funding for many, many years has been through, through foundations and through the relationships that develop between you and the program officers or the founders of the foundations. It's simple, but that's, that's the way it works. So let's talk a little bit more about some of the actual experiments and the, and the powers that we're talking about here. What kind of superpowers are we talking about? Are these things that people see in movies like X-Men can teleport over distance or what, what kind of things are we talking about? Well, superpower is a convenient way of talking about it. And in some respects, the reason why I chose the title supernormal rather than supernatural is to make the distinction between a divine gift, which is typically what supernatural means, and supernormal, which is just slightly better than normal. So when you look at comic books like X-Men – it's the same as with any form of entertainment. You take the real world as it is, and then you amplify it a couple thousand times to make it more interesting. So the abilities that I'm talking about then are kind of like what you see in the X-Men, but toned down by a factor of about a thousand. So teleportation, well, we don't see that very often in the lab, but we do see mind-matter interactions. Are there cases of telepathy, well, we can do tests in the laboratory and actually look for that kind of ability. Xavier, the head of the X-Men, has some form of remarkable clairvoyance. Well, we can test that in the lab too. So in, in each case, when you look at superhero type of powers, there is an analogy for a more realistic ability that tends, of course, not to be anything like what you see in comic books. But it looks at the same kind of idea and tests whether, in principle, those kinds of abilities would exist. And in most cases, what I would call elementary cities, this is the, the Sanskrit term from the Yoga Sutras, which means perfection or attainment, city, S-I-D-D-H-I. And it's what a yogi would call the superpowers. And it, of course, in that case, it's simply a matter of recognizing and, and enhancing an inherent human potential. Now, you mentioned this 
inherent human potential, these cities that are in the yogic lore. But a lot of people look at those stories of ancient miracles and they say that it's just superstition or, you know, maybe something happened that we can fully explain with the current understanding of science, but it's been blown up in many ways throughout the ages as the story was passed down, perhaps an oral tradition or something. Are these really more than just superstition? And are there studies that can be pointed to that demonstrate some of these? Well, it's certainly true that when you look at hagiography, the written account of lives of the saints, there are all kinds of exaggerations that go on and elaborations, especially since the stories of the saints tend to be written by disciples. And so their perception of their favorite demigod will, of course, be much greater than the way it probably is. Uh, so from a scientific perspective, I'm not so interested in whether Moses can part the Red Sea through some kind of psychokinetic intervention, but I am interested in whether he can do anything with his mind that affects the outside world, even to a very, very small degree. Because at this stage, we're talking about whether something is true in principle. Is it true at all, as opposed to it's impossible? So in the book, I talk about a number of classes of experiments that have developed over the past 150 years to look at a number of basic psychic phenomena to see whether they're true in principle. So let's say you wanted to, to test to see whether telepathy is true or not. So it's first, it's important to recognize that the experience of telepathy manifests in lots of different ways. A common way is that uh, the phone rings and before you even look at caller ID, you just somehow know who it is. You pick it up, sure enough, it's them. A similar experience is for unknown reasons, somebody that you haven't spoken to in a long time comes in your head and then an hour later they call you on the phone. Very unexpected. That sort of experience is reported a lot too. And there are many other examples. The question though is, how do you know from any given anecdotal story if if it's just a coincidence. Maybe you remember the interesting coincidences and you forget all of the other things that happen. And when you work through the mathematics, you'd find that you should expect one remarkable coincidence every 25.2 days, something like that. And that is true. That will happen sometimes. So this is why you have to formalize the experience into something that will stick into a laboratory context where you actually can calculate what is the expected chance outcome. And so unfortunately what this does, and this is true for any kind of psychological experiment, you take the rich unwashed raw world out there where all kinds of weird things happen and you squash it into something that you can test in the lab. So among other things, what you're, you're doing is raising your confidence in the result, but at the expense of, of squishing it down into something which is kind of artificial and the results will be small. They'll be kind of smaller than you would get in the real world. But we're willing to take that constraint because we want to have high confidence in the result. So a telepathy experiment that has been done now over four decades by at least 20 laboratories around the world is called the Gonsfeld Telepathy technique. Gansfeld is a German word meaning whole field. And it's kind of like a sensory deprivation technique, although it's actually sensory stimulation, but using unpatterned stimuli. So what that means is that you wear headphones that play white noise, so there's no pattern in the noise, and you put ping pong balls, a half a ping pong ball over each eye, and you ask the person to keep their eyes open, and then you shine a red light on their face. And with your eyes open, looking out at uh, white translucent ping pong balls, all you can see in every direction is just pink. 
you can't see anything really. So it's an unpatterned stimulus for your eyes, an unpatterned stimulus for your ears. And then you sit in a, a comfy chair, so you're not feeling any particular thing in your body. And you tell the person to simply relax in that state for about 15 minutes. And sometimes you'll also play a progressive relaxation tape so that, to help them relax even further. And since your eyes are open, what this does, and also the headphones are playing white noise pretty loud, it's difficult to fall asleep, although people can do it. And mainly what happens is that it puts a person into a hypnagogic state. They become very susceptible to very minor sensations and impressions, and they might see visual hallucinations, they might hear hallucinations, and that's exactly the state you want to put the person into, because if there's any signal that's coming from the outside, they might be more susceptible to it, since in effect their brain is starved for information. So you put the receiver of this experiment in this state, and they just sit there. You tell them that whenever an impression comes to mind, to speak it aloud. And this forces them to externalize their, what otherwise would be just a purely internal experience. Now, at a distance, you have a sender. The sender, first, the experimenter picks a pool of four pictures out of a large prepared pool. And so you randomly select one of those pools and you pull out four pictures. Now you randomly select one of the four pictures and you give that to the sender. And now the sender's job is to mentally send that imagery to the receiver. And of course, the receiver is speaking out loud and some versions of this experiment, whatever the receiver says is carried by a one-way audio link to the sender. And it gives the sender kind of a feedback for what's happening in the mind of the receiver. And they can adjust their sending strategy to try to optimize that link. So what I've just described goes on for 30 minutes or so. And then uh, the sender stops doing what they're doing. The receiver is taken out of the, the Gonsfeld condition and is shown four pictures, one of which was the one the sender was sending, and then three decoys. That's the other three pictures from the pool. These four pictures, by the way, are selected so that they're as different from each other as possible. So now the receiver knew what their experience was. Sometimes you play back an audio tape of what they said to remind them of what their experience was. And their job is you have four pictures, choose the one you think that the sender was sending. And so we know what chance is in this case. It's always going to be one in four. If there's no telepathy, the best you can do on average is get it right one in four times because the null hypothesis says that you can't get any information telepathically. So since we know the chance is one in four and now we have over 4,500 sessions of the type I just described by many laboratories, many different pairs of people, many different ages, and so on. What is the hit rate? Well, it's not 25%, it's 32%. And when you, you do the statistics on getting a 32% hit rate, where you know that chance is 25%, the odds against chance are hundreds of trillions to one. I think it's 300 quadrillion to one, but I don't remember exactly what it is. But it's a really, really big number to one. So the next step is now we know that what's going on in the experiment is not chance. Well, what is it? What's accounting for that additional 7% of information that's being transferred? And so you go through a due diligence list to see, could it have been a mistake? Well, there's all kinds of subtle mistakes that could be made in order to, to create a 7% result. And all of these methods are built into the protocol. The protocol is designed in such a way as to prevent all known flaws and all known artifacts. And here's in a sense where the skepticism that this this kind of experiment and this field have received over the years has been very valuable. 
because the skeptic is very motivated to find a reason to explain away the result. And so they'll say things like, well, early on in these kinds of experiments, there may have been one set of actual physical targets, like photographs. And so maybe when the sender is holding the photograph, they, they put a smudge on the actual target. And then if you actually show the target, that target to the receiver, they might notice that one of the pictures has a smudge on it. And so they would choose that one. Even unconsciously, they might choose that one. So this criticism is valid. It led to duplicate target series and then later to uh, digital pictures, which of course no one's actually touching and so on. Many, many criticisms of this type for all kinds of different ways that you could, you could get a an artifact to explain the result. And so the methods that have developed have excluded every possible explanation other than telepathy. And the results that I said then, where you get 32% rather than 25%, is after all of those criticisms, and the loopholes have been covered and the criticisms have been addressed, and you still end up with 32%. So up until recently, one of the remaining criticisms, which is very difficult to resolve, is, well, what if you get people who are motivated to not believe in the possibility of telepathy? In other words, you need committed skeptics to do the same experiment. Well, what do they get? Well, up until 2005, we had no answer because skeptics don't do these experiments. But this was a case where, where two professors who explicitly said that they don't believe it, they went ahead and did it anyway. And what did they get? They got a 32% hit rate. So we now know that the, the technique is pretty solid. It takes a lot of effort to simply do the experiment. It takes people and time and so on. And you collapse a half an hour's worth of sometimes very rich mental imagery into a single data point of you're correct or you're incorrect. So we're losing a lot of information in this experiment, but the bottom line is hit or miss. And on the very simple hit or miss statistic, there's no question that telepathy exists. And by the way, the vast majority of subjects in this experiment are college sophomores who make no claims about any psychic ability and especially no claims about being telepathic. So we know this is a generalized human ability. It's fairly low level in people who are not trained about it or don't have any talent in it. But that even raises the credibility even more because especially from a yogic perspective, telepathy is an inherent human possibility. And it, you need a lot, of, a lot of training and some talent in order to make it more evident, but it's always there. And so the Gonsfeld telepathy study confirms that. It's present in college sophomores who have no idea that they're telepathic, and yet they are. Is this something that I could be trained to do? Are there schools that would actually help me hone this ability so that it became more focused so that I could use it to get insider information to trade stocks or spy on other countries or use this in some sort of way that maybe wouldn't necessarily be in line with what was written about the powers in the yogic tradition, but in some self-serving way or even just to hone the ability whatsoever? Or are these people coming into your studies and your teaching them ways to kind of hone their ability in the short time that you have with them? Or are they really just going at this without ever even trying it? Many of our studies, we were not looking at training. Uh, we do tend to select people based on who we think will do better. And generally, meditators do better than non-meditators. But can you? It's the question is, can you learn how to amplify your abilities? The answer is yes. There is, uh, if, you, if you look up remote viewing training through Google, 
you'll find dozens of places that claim that they will teach you how to do remote viewing, just like our military spies used to do. And that some of that works to an extent. Part of it, it, it works because you're simply, you're practicing. Practice doing anything will eventually make it a little bit better. Talent also makes it much, much easier. If you don't have talent in these, this domain, then you're not going to get very far. But no different than if you don't have talent as a musician or as an athlete, you're not going to get very far in those domains either. So talent, practice, training, knowing the, the tricks of the trade. And there probably also is something along the lines of the yogic lore. So the yogis knew way back when that, that these abilities that we're talking about could be used for good or bad. They're, they're like they're morality neutral. It's simply abilities that we have. They also knew, though, that if you use it for bad things, we're talking about activities that are not maybe good for you in the short term, but are probably not good for everybody in the long term. Just use that as kind of a moral yardstick. That when that happens, that basically you become Darth Vader. And so Darth Vader doesn't really like being Darth Vader. I mean, he was trying to become not Darth Vader over the course of the of the movie series. And this... <laughs> This is true in a lot of mythology as well, that when someone drops into the dark side, which usually means that there's something off kilter on their morals or their ethics, they pay for it. And generally, once they're in it, they don't like it anymore. They want to redeem themselves in some way. So the yogic path spends a huge amount of effort on making sure that your morals and your ethics and your ego are out of the way early on, and you continually practice that in the yogic path. You get your morals straight, you get your ethics straight, you learn that your ego is not as important as you thought it was, and then you do the meditation and you do the, the physical postures and all the rest of it, and eventually you will start bumping up against against these the cities, the various powers. That's interesting. It's kind of like a process. It's almost like you walk down this path and these are the natural results of doing these kind of activities, yogic practices and those kind of things. That's exactly what it is. It's eight-limbed path, eight different practices that you do, not exactly in sequence. You do them more or less all at the same time, but some are easier to do in the beginning than, than the later steps. But it's a well-honed path, which takes into account that you need to be trained in certain things, some of which are, are behavior, and some are physical and some are mental. And if you do that, you achieve the ultimate goal of the yogi, which has nothing to do with psychic ability and has everything to do with a realization of who you are. That's what yoga is about. We don't see yoga that way in the West, but that's the traditional path. And you can find ashrams around where that, that is very clearly what, what it's all about. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look. And you see into your imagination We'll begin with a spin Traveling in the world of my creation What we'll see will defy explanation Yoga is the cessation of revolutions of the mind. In other words, uh, you can interpret that at many levels. Consciousness, like a pool, like water, like a reflecting pool. If there are waves on that, it doesn't reflect, it breaks up all the reflections. 
So stop the waves on the mind and it will reflect reality clearly. Get a perfectly calm mind. That's one meaning of it. And at last you find out that you, as an ego, as what you ordinarily call your mind, are a mess. That you, you just can't do this thing. You can't do it by any of the means that have been held out to you. You can concentrate, yes, you've acquired a considerable power of concentration by doing all this. But you find you're doing it for the wrong reason. And there's no way of doing it for the right reason. The word yoga basically denotes the state that would be the opposite of what our psychologists call alienation. The view of separateness, the feeling of separateness, the feeling of being cut off from being. And most civilized people do in fact feel that way because they have a kind of myopic attention focused on their own boundaries and what is inside those boundaries and they identify themselves with the inside and don't realize that you cannot have an inside without an outside. That would seem, wouldn't it, to be extremely elementary logic that we could have no sense of being ourselves, of having a personal identity, without the contrast of something that is not ourselves, that is to say, other. But the fact that we don't realize that self and other go together is the root of an enormous and terrifying anxiety. And all these great mystical statements mean nothing whatsoever. They're ultimate statements, just as you know, the trees and the clouds and the mountains and the stars have no meaning because they're not words. Words have meaning because they're symbols, because they point to something other than themselves. And language is very, very mysterious. I mean, it is true magic. People run all over the place looking for paranormal abilities. But notice that when I speak, if your internal dictionary matches my internal dictionary, that my thoughts cross through the air as an acoustical pressure wave and are reconstructed inside your cerebral cortex as your thought, your understanding of my words. Telepathy exists. It's just that the carrier wave is small mouth noises. You are listening to episode number 68 of The Extra Environmentalist, the Halloween edition. Today we're talking with author Dean Radin about his book, Supernormal. You mentioned in your book that you were going through India and learning about the practices from the perspective of a non-Western mind. What do people think in places like India about these cities and about how they're written in these ancient texts? 
A lot of, of the intellectual world in India is very strongly influenced by the West. For a hundred years, India was ruled by the British. And so a lot of the schooling, a lot of the techniques and structure within the academic world and also in government in India is all, it's all Western, meaning British, influenced, including, by the way, yoga. So the yoga that we know in the West today was invented in India roughly 70 years ago by a guy named Krishna Machuria who was influenced by the British system, as many Indians were at the time. And so he took British calisthenics, and he took Swedish gymnastics, and he took American bodybuilding, and a little bit of the traditional yoga asanas, or physical postures, and squished it all together into a form that would be recognizable and amenable to the British students in the schools in India. That's what's been exported to the rest of the world, and it has been imported back into India today. So what you see in India today, and, and it's starting to show up elsewhere, are yoga competitions, which are all about physical postures. And there's even a movement afoot to get yoga postures into the Olympics as a sport. Because at the, the high end here, like any kind of physical activity, you have people with amazing skills. They can do unbelievable things physically. And so it is kind of a sport, but an ancient yogi would look at that activity and shudder. They would say, oh my God, it's such a distortion of what this practice is about. It has a little bit to do with physical postures, but that's not what it's really about. So what was yoga before? Because am I going to be able to go to my yoga studio and get really good at doing downward dog poses and then be able to communicate with people telepathically? Or what, <laughs> what was it before? I think you would only be able to communicate telepathically with uh, dogs facing downward. That's what would happen. If you become a specialist <laughs> in downward-facing dog, then all dogs that happen to be facing downward, then that, but see, that's not very useful. So the whole purpose of the asanas in yoga was to get your body comfortable enough so that you could sit down for six hours at a time and just sit there. That's what it's about. So that the old pictures from way back when, probably 5,000 years ago, showed people sitting in a full lotus position. Well, for two reasons. One of it, it might have been yoga practice, but also that they hadn't invented chairs yet. And so how else are you going to sit? Well, it turns out that if you sit a lot in, in a full lotus position, it's kind of comfortable. It's not comfortable for Westerners typically because we're used to chairs. But if you don't have any chairs, then you sit on the ground, and a comfortable way of sitting on the ground is half lotus or full lotus. But that that's what it was all about, is to get your body flexible enough and comfortable enough to sit down. The whole goal of yoga is sit down, turn off your mind for hours at a time, sometimes six hours, eight hours, 10 hours even. That's the level of, of practice that's necessary to get to these refined states, at least to take the inherent abilities that we have and to really amplify them a lot. So we've been I, talking a bunch about telepathy. Could you tell us a little bit more about some of the other powers that kind of manifest along this eight-limb path? Okay, so the first city that is mentioned in the Yoga Sutras, the Yoga Sutras are written by this Indian sage Patanjali around 2,000 years ago, and is considered the, the classical yogic text. It was the first written form of what at that point had been an oral tradition probably for a 1,000 years or more. So in this book, it's hard to imagine what it must have been like 2,000 years ago. So here's somebody who's a scholar who's writing down this ancient technique. And the third book within this uh, the Yoga Sutras is all about the development of the cities. It's all about these special powers that arise. And they were listed both in a matter-of-fact way, that this is simply something that happens, and also 
written to, as a kind of a yardstick that when you notice this ability, then that means you've gotten a certain distance along the way. So the very first city that is mentioned is the simultaneous perception of past, present, and future. So we would probably consider that precognition. It's the first and then roughly the most elementary city. So how do we test that in a laboratory? In the laboratory, you can test it either through experiments that require a conscious response, like uh, what do you think is going to happen in the future, or an unconscious response where you use some kind of a body indicator to reflect what's going on in your unconscious. So what I've done is I've, starting in the 1990s, I developed a method to monitor unconscious responses in the body because as you can imagine, if you bring somebody into the lab and they don't know if they can do precognition or not, if you give them what seems like a, an impossible job, guess what's going to happen next, immediately your, your mind starts playing tricks on you and it tries to outguess what's going to happen as opposed to perceive it because people don't know how to perceive it, so they're going to start guessing. And then you use all kinds of statistical anticipation strategies and you fall into the gambler's fallacy and all of that. So it gets in the way. So what I did instead was we'd sit somebody down and record an aspect of their physiology like heart rate or skin conductance or brain waves, something like that. And we'd record it continually while they're looking at a computer screen, which most of the time is, is dark, but every so often a picture will pop up. And the picture will either be emotionally calm or it'll be emotionally negative or emotionally positive. So emotionally positive is things like smiling babies and erotic scenes. And emotionally negative are floods and fires and accidents and surgeries and that sort of thing. When, if, if you think about the way this experiment unfolds, the sequence of pictures that you see are selected completely at random. So nobody knows in advance what the sequence is. What we're interested in is what is the body doing immediately before a calm picture as compared to immediately before an emotional picture. The hypothesis here is that there's something in our awareness that spreads out in time a little bit, as the Yoga Sutra says, in which case just before you're about to get an emotional shock by seeing a very emotional picture, well maybe that leaks backwards in time and comes up through your unconscious and your body reflects it as a result. So you become more emotional before an emotional picture and you remain calm before a calm picture. So I did that experiment. This first I did was around 1995, something like that. And to my amazement, it worked. I think I was using skin conductance as the measure and it showed that people were more sympathetically aroused, more activation in the nervous system before the emotional pictures than before the calm pictures. So from that one experiment to now, I've done a half a dozen of them and then colleagues around the world have done something like three dozen additional studies using all kinds of different measures in the body and all kinds of different stimuli. And we find that overall, there's little doubt that the, the nervous system, both the central nervous system and the autonomic nervous system, they do respond in advance to an upcoming stimulus that is unpredictable or that is randomly selected so you don't know what it is. So. That's an example of how in the laboratory we test the, this question of is it impossible even in principle to, to know what's about to unfold and the answer appears to be yes. So if you start keeping a checklist of potentially said this, you know, can we confirm it? Well, there's check, check on precognition, check on telepathy, check on clairvoyance and so on. So far everything that has been possible to test in the laboratory 
that Patanjali wrote about, that we can confirm that it is true in principle. People who are practicing yoga in a more traditional way and maybe even have some of these abilities from a more traditional sense, what do they think about science, Western science, trying to study them? And also, what is it like when Western scientists meet people like the Dalai Lama? Well, two very different questions. And the first question, many traditional yogis, they don't like the idea of science intruding into this area. It's not so much that they don't like that science will learn something of it, but they see it as a distraction from what we should be doing. Well, that's the yogi's interest in what they're doing. They are striving to become enlightened. And the yoga literature makes it very clear that when you get too distracted by these cities or the psychic abilities, that that will pull you off the path. Even if you're not using it for bad things, you're not becoming Darth Vader, but you're becoming distracted by the abilities themselves, and rather than doing what you're supposed to be doing, which is to become enlightened. So we have that one class like that. You have another class of yogis who pay very close attention to the Yoga Sutras, which says, among other things, when you develop the cities, you will not show them to anyone. There's even one of the sutras that says, even if an esteemed teacher asks you to demonstrate a city, don't do it. And the reason is, straightforward, that the city is a power. Power is seductive, and it's seductive in the sense that you will become corrupted if you if you begin to demonstrate it, because your ego gets in the way, and that, that's exactly what happens to Darth Vader. You get corrupted by the power. There are prescriptions that are prohibitions within the yogic path that says, don't mess with these. You know, they, they will happen. You can enjoy it. Don't show it to anybody. You know, that's it. Don't do anything with it. Well, I'm a scientist and not a yogi, and I want to know what is wrong about our scientific worldview that is not admitting that such kinds of abilities exist, because maybe we've seriously overlooked something, and wouldn't it be interesting to find out that our potentials are far greater than what our textbooks say? So that's my interest. When it comes to the dialogues with the Dalai Lama and scientists, from the positive side, there's been a, a huge advancement in research on meditation as a result of those dialogues. And they, of course, given rise to a big rash of books on changing your mind by changing your brain and the, the blissful brain and the yogi brain. And I mean, there's a lot of books now with brain in the topic because among other things, the, the research on the plasticity of the brain was largely inspired by the idea that it's not only your body that can be changed through practice, but your mind and brain are also changed. You meditate long enough, not only is the function of the brain changed, but the morphology of it changes too. Its actual shape begins to change. And so this recasts the brain more into the direction of like a muscle. You use it in a certain way and a muscle develops. It's almost that simple. But this is a muscle that's involved with the way that you perceive and think and cognate. And so it does suggest, well, most neuroscientists aren't willing to go there yet, but it suggests that by thinking certain ways, you can literally reshape the form and function of the brain, and you will perceive the world in a different way. If you can imagine doing this level of work for, say, 12 hours a day, and it involves meditation, the brains of the people who come out of that after years of practice will be quite different than the brain of an ordinary person that could very well give rise to a different perception of reality and different skills. So in that case, then the cities may be not so 
strange. The primary strangeness of the cities is that they seem to involve interactions that go beyond space and time, and that's the puzzle. But the fact that long-term meditation will make people different was first a challenge by the Dalai Lama to look into it, and then eventually a few scientists did, and they confirmed, yeah, people end up being quite different as a result of this practice. So that's the positive side. I remember reading in Clan of the Cave Bear where they're all sitting around a fire and the one shaman reaches out with his mind and connects the whole troop together. And there's this really connected moment where they go back and forward in time. And it's kind of like how you're talking about. I'm wondering if there's a lot of kind of historical evidence showing that this kind of stuff has existed and has been used by humans for thousands of years. And then maybe a step further from that is what kind of significance do they have and why would they want to use this kind of thing? Why would this ability exist in humans in the first place? I don't think that the abilities are are something that has developed. I think it's more that it's simply a reflection of the way that the universe is stuck together. In other words, it's, this is not human-centric. It would also exist in any other living system. As humans, we, of course, pay a lot of attention to things that we're interested in, so we tend to see it there. But it probably does exist in animals and plants and many other things, and it could be used in different ways. So the use of the thing that we're talking about is, in the simplest possible terms, is something like the holistic nature of reality. Ultimately, the universe is not made up of separate objects, but are made up of networks of relationships. That's what modern physics tells us. That's what the yogis were talking about. We don't need to devolve into an idealistic world where all there is is mind and nothing else is real. There are real things out there, but they're not separate objects in the way that we usually think of things as being separate. So if what I just said is true, that we live in this some kind of a highly intertwined holistic reality, then telepathy is a reflection of that that has to do with the minds. And clairvoyance is a different kind of reflection, which is the way it shows up in perception and so on. All of these abilities, all of the cities then become reflections of what amounts to a holistic reality in which we live. And occasionally we actually can see it happen. I'm wondering what it would mean if our society actually moved into something beyond a materialist paradigm that underlies all of our major institutions and has been the operating system essentially that we've built so many aspects of our society around if we recognize that there is evidence of telepathy remote viewing and other psi phenomena what would it mean for a society that understood that and started you know studying it or incorporating it into our basic narratives of reality and what life means well i don't know and i don't think anybody can know at this point we think of of very simple analogies to the question that you just asked, which was asking the head of Digital Equipment Corporation 30 years ago, what did he think would be the future of computing? And they were specializing in many computers at the time. And of course, they went out of business pretty quickly because they didn't see developments in the big computers or in PCs or in smartphones or in anything else. It's, these are people at the top of their game and make big corporations and completely miss something which we now look back in hindsight as obvious. So it's very, very difficult to know. And that, by the way, is relatively minor. That's like one technological thing. Here we're talking about a change in our understanding of who and what we are. 
like very, very fundamental aspects of humanity. And so it's really difficult to guess. And one thing we do know, as we've already discussed early on in, in this podcast, is well, what do we do with all the inertia, all of the vested interests in lots of different realms? How is that going to interact with it? Well, predictably, things will move very slowly because these kinds of ideas for some will be exciting and new, and for others, they'll be very scary. I mean, people are already freaking out over the possibility or the reality that the NSA can listen to anything we've ever said and any kind of media. Well, now we're bumping it up another level where anything that anybody thinks ever in the past, present, or future could, in principle, be known. That changes our laws, it changes our behavior, it changes everything. So whenever you, you present somebody or society with the possibility that everything is going to change, people would rather watch NASCAR and go to Walmart. I mean, it, it, we, <laughs> we, we understand what that's like, and you know, it's not perfect, but we can kind of live with it. But and it's the uncertainty of what will it turn into? When you see the way that the media has treated these ideas, most often it's presented in terms of something like the Borg on Star Trek, that it's seen as absolutely horrific. But within the Borg and within the invasion of the body snatchers and all of these other similar tales, inside the hive mind is the best possible place you can be. It's outside the hive mind that it looks horrific because you have to drop some of your ego to be part of the of the collective. But being in the collective is highly efficient. It's sometimes described in fiction as blissful. You have a very clear purpose for living. You know, all of it is, it's all right there. And so why would we resist that? Well, we resist it because we don't want to change. We're afraid of the change. In those Star Trek movies, they always resist the change because it, it may take something away from the people that get into it. Isn't that yeah. right? Yes, but at the at the goal of major advancements in terms of what the collective can do. So you see that for the American cowboy ethic, the personal ego is the most important thing. That's why it's the idea of a hive mind is so horrific. You're giving up your personal freedom to help the collective. But if the collective can be so much better than the individual, well, maybe it's not such a bad thing. But see, this requires that we, we set aside our image of, of the cowboy and put on a different kind of image of who and what we are and what, what we're here for. And that's, that for many people, very difficult to do. And speaking about the health of the collective, so many of the episodes of our podcast and, and of our show have been about the severe climate and energy and social crises that we face as a species. And a lot of those go back to economic growth and the growth of our entire species on this planet. And growth is the juvenile stage of any organism. And our civilization has been growing for many years, and now we're reaching the limits to this growth. Is there any hope for a human species to leave its adolescent growth phase and then mature into something else? Well, I can imagine that when the, the butterfly is going through its chrysalis stage, it has a lot of anxiety, if a butterfly could have anxiety. And old things need to drop away and new things will arise. The hope is, the aspiration is, that the new thing that arises is much better. But the history of virtually every organism shows that it has to go through a pretty major crisis for that transformation to take place. So can we get from our adolescent stage to a more mature stage without major catastrophes of one type or another? I would say the history tells us no. We can't do it smoothly. There has to be some kind of a break. Something happens. And then if we're really lucky, we come out through the bifurcation as a much better species. This evolution takes place not only in the mind, but in 
our physical space and in, in, in physical body as well. What kind of changes in the people other than this connected consciousness would we expect? I mean, I guess that would spawn a whole new kind of human. What would a society look like where everyone knows everything that everyone else is thinking? That's the question, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, among other things, it has to be a society where it doesn't take forever for people to become mature. Like, you know, you almost have to be born hardwired to be empathetic and compassionate and mature very quickly so that it's not a big challenge for people to to work through their ego, something like that. And I can sort of imagine that. You, know, you can imagine humans have gone through many stages over the years and maybe a new proto-human is already in development now that will make it much, much easier for younger people to, in fact, we already see this to a small extent, that when I was growing up, no one ever talked about ecology. There was no recycling. There wasn't any attention to the planet at all. And that was only 50 years ago. So here we are in a mere two generations where kids everywhere, they know about recycling and they know about ecology and you know, beginning to learn about interconnection and banking and all that stuff. Maybe it only takes another couple of generations and people will will somehow absorb by osmosis that we really do need to live in a different way. And so we morph into some other kind of humanity. And 60 years ago, to be able to say that I could send what I was seeing to somebody around the world instantaneously almost using some kind of device that I carried in my pocket would have been unbelievable. And now we have the internet that enables this global human interactions, it's a big part of our show and all the people in the many different countries around the world that email and download our show and connect with us and tell us that they're listening. Is the internet some part of this whole process? Maybe it's replacing some part of telepathy or enabling some kind of future telepathy? What do you think about that? Well, is it an evolutionary push of some type? I think the answer is, is clearly yes. It, it is changing every aspect of what it means to be alive today. And it will continue to do that. So some people have speculated that what we're doing with technology is mimicking our inherent capacities. And it makes it comfortable for people to think about doing things that we actually can do without the technology. So just as an example, 20 years ago, I was writing about the use of the mind to control machines. And this was considered so laughable, I almost couldn't get it published anywhere. And now we see that the army is paying for research on what they call synthetic telepathy. Now, this is still all brain-based stuff. It's picking up brain signals and turning it into control mechanisms. But the very fact that they would call it synthetic telepathy and are using it as a huge field now, it's growing by leaps and bounds, it's getting us one step closer to simply the idea that the mind, in this case the brain, but that the brain and mind have the capacity to do something directly into the world. By the same token, as you said, that it's almost as though we've recreated clairvoyance technologically. And if again, enough people get used to the idea of the smartphone will continue to shrink and eventually we'll ingest it or it'll be implanted in us or something like that. What, what will happen from that? It'll turn into a hive mind. The mind already is getting more and more connected through this technology, eventually the technology will disappear altogether and we will be a hive mind. And then that's the day that Gaia will wake up and the planet starts putting its house in order. With all of your background and work and studies into these human abilities, 
what do you think our human potential really is if we were to embrace it and live up to it? I don't know that we can place any limits on human potential. In fact, the, the moment that you begin to think of what the constraints are probably creates the constraint in the first place. So I'd rather think that our potentials are as far as we can imagine. And we, you start thinking of, well, we couldn't go past that. Well, that's a limitation in imagination. In fact, among some of my more conservative colleagues, I sometimes get the sense that they have an imagination deficiency syndrome. That when you start bumping up against people who scoff at ideas and dismiss it immediately like a knee-jerk reaction, that's a problem with imagination. I think we, we need a lot more imagination than a lot less. So I'm not willing to put any constraints on it at all. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time with us today. How can our listeners find your work and follow what you're doing? Well, for much more information about the yoga connection to all this, it would be supernormalbook.com. And the book is available wherever books are sold. And there's an ebook form as well, supernormalbook.com. And that closes out our conversation with Dr. Dean Radin about scientific evidence for super normal human capabilities like telepathy, precognition, and more, as well as a little bit of the history of yoga. And I really thought it was interesting at the beginning of the conversation where we were discussing what it's like to change minds with evidence. And so this is something that Dean Radin runs up against all the time, and it's something that runs through nearly all of the episodes that we do where we talk with these radical renegade economists, whether they be ecological economists or classical economists, where they're trying to run up against a whole profession, a whole field of theory and thinking and saying, look at actual evidence of something that runs against the way that you think about the world. And they're saying that to this particular discipline. And that's what Dean Radin's doing in the field of psychology and many other fields that are fundamentally altered by his research. And the point that he was making at the start of the conversation about how academia is living in the world of ideas and it's sustained by these theories about how these ideas stick together that's why things change so slowly, whether we're talking about human psychology, parapsychology, or even the world of economics. That's absolutely right, Justin. And we run into this kind of same predicament over and over again about how entrenched power and how the established ideas kind of run against new ideas, new ways of thinking. And even with Dean Radin's, these ideas that he's, he's talking about are old. These are 
I mean, as old as human beings are, these kind of ways of thinking go back millennia where people have been sitting in yogic shrines doing poses, trying to be able to sit still for hours and hours at a time so they can transcend to these higher levels of thinking so they can be able to see far off places from where they're sitting. These ideas of these supernormal powers are not anything that's new in our culture. These things have just kind of gone, they've gone away. And now he's trying to bring them back and add a little bit of scientific spice to them, if you will, to integrate them into this modern way of thinking. And people who, who normally would, you know, be okay with any kind of concept, as long as there's scientific backing, kind of scoff at the idea that he's trying to apply these scientific thoughts to this old world way of thinking. I really liked his point about how at the end when he was talking about there's no limit to human potential except for the amount of limits that we put it on ourselves. And every time we do put a limit on, that's just limiting the amount of potential that we could possibly have. That was really interesting. So the the challenge in dealing with human limits is that we do have a large number of social systems that have reached their limit and no longer serve ourselves. And they're working to constrain actually human potential. And what I see all the time is that so many people are just not served by our global economic system whatsoever in its destruction of the environment and our societal well-being. And so the question is, how do we get beyond that? And I think that as Dean Radin was saying, just like with the chrysalis with the butterfly, probably if you're inside that cocoon as it's changing, It's a very tumultuous and brutal experience as everything is dissolved and transformed into something else. And we may be going through a transformation where everything's dissolved and just nothing comes out. It could be terrible. Or we could emerge from this whole thing as a species transformed as a butterfly over the next few hundred years into something much better. And the death of our lifestyle is very much like the death of our ego. And maybe we could could learn to tap into these unused aspects of human potential over a long period of time. But I'm also skeptical of it because just as we were talking about turning into Darth Vader, I think a lot of these incredible things are possible, but they may always be at a level where they just simply make life interesting. You know, whether it's the experiences that can't be explained, like having a vivid dream of someone you haven't heard from for a long time, and then the next day they email you or you run into them on the street, some of it may be just an arrow eventually hitting a target if you shoot enough arrows. There's so many interactions that are going on on a daily basis that sometimes you're just going to hit the target. But then there's those particular experiences that seem to have a certain vividness, a certain meaning to them, the synchronicities that are so powerful, they go beyond just that simple coincidence. And I think some of those may just simply exist to make life interesting. Some of them may exist because your unconscious mind is trying to open you up to things or make you aware of certain things, but other parts of it may never be understood in any sort of you know scientific understanding that we understand computers or machinery. They may always just be there as one of those interesting side effects of being human, one of those interesting side effects of existing in the universe. We might not be able to control our telepathy or precognition that exists to do anything with it. It just might be in the background. So all the time when I was in school, Justin, I was only allowed to work with my frontal mind, my non-unconscious mind. And I think that's a really interesting point you're just bringing up 
at how that unconscious mind kind of sometimes brings us kicking and screaming into these parts of ourselves or directions in our lives that we don't even realize that we want to go. I know there's a lot, been a lot of things in my life where I don't even realize the direction I need to be going until my unconscious mind takes me that way. Going through, through my whole education system, my whole public schooling education system, I was not really exposed to using my unconscious mind to make decisions. I was not really even given that opportunity. I was told to develop frontal lobe things, make cognitive decisions, make sure that I study my mathematics so I can make the right choice. And I wasn't really given the opportunity to, to think with my unconscious mind, to let it direct me. And I think that this this is a really understudied, underdeveloped, underutilized part of so many people's lives who just concentrate on that frontal lobe, on that decision-making conscious part of your brain when there's so much information that you, you're taking in. I think there's like 90% of the information that you do take in is coming into your unconscious brain, being processed by that, and your frontal lobe doesn't even get to touch any of that stuff. Another point that Dean Radin brought up that I thought was pretty interesting was the hive mind aspect of where he thinks human species is headed towards. You know, in Star Trek, they're always fighting against the Borg, the hive mind Borg that's always trying to conquer humanity to make the individual become part of the collective. And what Dean is saying is that inside of the collective, this is the most peaceful place to be because there's high efficiency. Everyone's kind of working together towards a very common goal. And I'm not saying that this is the best way to be because this is something that we've been taught for a long time is not the best way. Yeah, I don't think it's about going fully into the Borg as much as it is going fully into the cowboy idea either. It's about finding a balance between the two. And we've lived for the last few hundred years really celebrating that whole cowboy ethic that Dean Radin mentioned, that whole American individualist enclosed ego isolated from everything else and trying to create a whole global system that produces as many of those as possible, whereas we really need to take a step back and start moving in the direction where we're looking at this entire idea and notion of collective well-being as far as our species is concerned. And that can be really discomforting for a lot of people who didn't grow up in that in that mindset and thinking of things in that way. But we've reached a point where the parts that remain unconscious for ourselves and for the human system are being made conscious at a rapid pace. We could live 50 or 100 years ago without acknowledging the problems of continued greenhouse gas emissions, or we could live without the problem of our tremendous energy obesity and not have to worry about it. But now those issues are entering into our awareness on a continual basis, whether it's pipeline spills or deep water drilling platforms that are exploding and all kinds of things that are entering into our regular consciousness that previously we could ignore. But Dean Radin is discussing all of these interesting things that are potentially part of the human experience that we don't even get to access. But jumping into a few news items, one of the stories that's worth covering here is how a recent study shows that only one in eight workers worldwide are psychologically committed to jobs. And actually, almost a quarter of workers worldwide are actively disengaged meaning that they are unproductive at work and spreading this negativity to their coworkers. So in rough numbers, this translates into about 900 million people who are not engaged and 340 million actively disengaged 
workers around the globe. That's what, a poll according to Gallup. So that's more than a billion people worldwide who were working, who aren't engaged, and also are actively disengaged. And so what it means is not only if there's a potential to do all of these things like maybe telepathy or precognition, if you're quiet and focused and have this cognitive surplus, it actually means that there's even non-superhuman capabilities, just like normal human cognitive capabilities that most people aren't even able to do because most of their time is devoted to doing stuff that they don't want to, that they're not even psychologically engaged with. I don't even know what their psychological state is. I think it's part of why the whole zombie mythos has become so so ubiquitous in society because there literally are tons of people forced to do work that puts them into a zombie state because that's the only option they have for coping. In our last Halloween episode, as many of you listeners might remember, we talked with David McNally about monsters and the mythos behind monsters. Zombies come from the disengaged, underly active worker who just goes to work and doesn't really think about anything except going home and watching football when they get home. Yeah, and so that takes us into our next story, which is a piece from CNBC on how financial workers are falling sick due to stress and due to the threat of job losses and pressures created by the ongoing restructuring in the financial sector have led to a tremendous decline in the health and well-being of financial industry workers. Um, And so there's a quote from one of the people who directed the survey, and they said the poor health of financial workers is becoming the next phase of the financial crisis. There's so much stress being put onto people in order to maintain the illusion of business as usual being possible through all the financial arrangements that have made. It's crushing individual people's lives. It's absolutely destroying their well-being, being part of the industry. One thing that's not disappointing, Justin, is our fantastic listeners and are even more fantastical, those people out there who listen to the show and find it within themselves to send us their hard-earned dollars so that we can bring these episodes to you. That's right. We have just been absolutely stunned at the level of support we've been receiving from our listener base over the last few months. It's really helping us to put some things in place to continue improving the quality, make the whole production process easier, like upgrading our Dropbox and getting some more mics sent around to guests. So it's really fantastic that we've had people like Ronald in Houston, Texas donate. And also Pat from Oregon. And Christopher from Massachusetts. And also Kurt from Seattle. Thanks, Kurt. And also Quasi Periodic, who is a continual voicemail supporter. So thanks to all of you for your donations. And I think that's probably the first time everybody who's donated recently has been from the United States. And so one of the advantages you have for donating within the United States is that we have a tax ID number because of our 501c3 organization. And you can use that for your taxes to make a tax-deductible donation. So Ronald, Pat, Christopher, Kurt, and Mr. Quasi-Periodic all have made tax-deductible donations. And if you need that tax ID number, it is on the website. Our 501c3 is actually a not-for-profit, and that is what the Extra Environmentalist is a part of. So thank you once again for all those fantastic listeners and donators out there who send in their hard-earned dollars to the show. If you, too, want to send in money to the Extra Environmentalist, you can head over to our website, which is www.extraenvironmentalist.com, and find the Donate button right on the website. And you, too, can send in your hard-earned dollars. If you want to listen to more of the Extra Environmentalist, we have a whole backload of episodes, 67 full 
almost two hour long episodes for you to listen to till your heart is so full of extra environmentalists that it feels like it might explode. You can find us on Facebook where the conversation keeps going. You can find a community of people all talking about these ideas that we talk about here on the show. And you can also find us on Twitter. Or you can call in and leave a voicemail for us at plus one nine one nine seven oh one nine eight seven two or through our Skype account at the extra environmentalist. And going back to everybody who's donated, they will be receiving some bonus content in the near future. Some of the stuff that we've recorded at conferences that just won't ever find its way onto the show, but it's still really great quality stuff. And people who donate at least $30 will be getting one of our new t-shirts once the design is finished. So we're working on that. Hopefully we'll get them out by the end of the year to everybody who's donated enough for a t-shirt and is on our big list to receive the t-shirts when they come out. We got an email from Niels recently who said that he really enjoyed our site, but that'd be much more convenient if there was a search function, which do not worry, Niels, we have recognized this issue and our web genie Chris is in the process of adding a search function into our website along with all the other amazing updates he's made to the site recently. Thank you so much to Chris for all of his hard work on the site. Can't do it without you, buddy. Thanks to everybody who writes into the show on a regular basis. We really appreciate it. We appreciate all the news articles and points that you bring up and things that you bring to our awareness. So feel free to keep communicating with us or start communicating with us at podcast at extraenvironmentalist.com. Thank you so much to everyone out there who makes this show a reality. Have a wonderful Halloween and keep the candy flowing. What is happening after 25,000 years or 15,000 years of agriculture is that the processes that seemed eternal, the processes of tilling the fields, smelting metals, establishing markets, cutting deals, so forth and so on, have in our lifetimes emerged as self-limiting processes. But if you could sit in on the board meetings of the people who own the planet. They possess data moving across their desks every day, which entirely support my contention that business as usual has been taken off the menu. You have only to propagate the curves of population growth, of HIV infection, of ozone depletion, of toxification of the oceans, so forth and so on, we all know the laundry list, to convince yourself that business as usual is no longer an option. There is no middle way. There is no Ozzie and Harriet third millennium scenario. The choices are either uh, a hideous, nightmarish world, a soylent green kind of world, a world where people of privilege defend that privilege uh, with uh, tremendous establishments of armament and propaganda, and the rest of the world slips into poverty, starvation, desperation, and death. This is the kind of world that rationalists fear. 
And it's also the only kind of world that they can imagine because they are bankrupt of inspiration and ideas. And so the entire effort of the establishment has become one of holding down panic, keeping the ball in play, keeping ordinary people and ordinary populations quiescent. And this is why our situation feels so schizophrenic, because what is under discussion is how, what manner of fine-tuning shall be applied to the social machinery in order to make it possible to hold together the illusion of business as usual. And the answer is there is no such fine-tuning. It's all finished. And instead, what is needed is a radical openness to new ideas of all sorts. And I believe that once this radical openness to new ideas is given respectability, the boundless creativity of the human mind will be tapped into and come to our aid. But we have to stop trying to preserve a status quo which has made us neurotic and self-defeating, admit that we have wandered long in the wilderness, and then begin to talk about what should be done about it. Next episode of The Extra Environmentalist, we hear from Dr. Tim Mitchell about his book Carbon Democracy and Richard Heinberg on snake oil. To solve the problem of too much oil, particularly in the second half of the 20th century, was to constantly search for ways to use more of it up. So from the 1940s onwards, you have oil companies together with other corporations interested in oil, car manufacturers and so on, working together to try and put in place ways of living in the U.S. in particular, that were enormously carbon heavy. Instead of making a profit on selling natural gas, they're profiting from mergers and acquisitions and lease sales. And the industry is, uh, is a, a financial bubble in the classic sense.
subsequent. Well, Shaggy, the city of Detroit contracted with us to figure out what's happening to all the money. It's mysteriously disappearing. So they called the Mystery Mobile so that we could investigate what's happening to it. Let's ask around. Like, it's getting really weird around here, Scooby. It looks like it's a mummy. Like, like it's a mummy. Get out of here, guys. Wait, guys, it's actually just a destitute resident of Detroit covered in rags. Let's ask him what's happening. Mr. Detroit resident, why are you on the street all covered in rags, sir? I had no more clothes to wear, so uh, I found me a nice spot on the cement here and uh, settled down. Just been hanging out here for a couple weeks now. It's mighty nice cement. There seems to be some kind of creature over here that comes over every night. You kids should stick it out and see if you can catch him. Like, that sounds like a great idea. We should wait over here in this square that's been converted into a community garden. We'll hide behind these lettuce leaves and see what the monster looks like. Like, we've been hiding out in this garden for like three hours. I'm getting really hungry. Be quiet, Shaggy. I think I see something. Like, it looks like a monster. Uh, every night I come and feast on the lifeblood of Detroit. I smash all the windows, I salvage all the copper, and I destroy all the factories. <laughs> and I sell it all away to our creditors in China. <laughs> Zoinks! That looks like a crazy monster. Let's get a little closer, guys, and we'll see if we can catch him. Get up behind him, Shaggy. No way, Jose. Wait, Sco Scooby's running the other side of him. Be careful, Scooby. Uh, now that I've salvaged all this copper, I'll turn around and load it into my... Uh, it's a dog, and people, they're watching me. Get away from here. Looks like he spotted us. We better run. He's getting away. We better catch him. He ran into a bank, but we've got him trapped inside. Don't worry, guys. I thought ahead, and I have a trap put inside the bank. All we have to do is get a little bit closer, and Scooby, you pull that lever over there to the right of the building. <laughs> They'll never find me in here. Like now, Scooby. <laughs> He's trapped under all the decks of the city. He'll never get out. Like, let's see who's behind this mask. Hey, get away. Zoinks, it's Jamie Diamond, the CEO of JP Morgan. What are you doing here? I was feasting on the economic livelihood of all the people of the city by extracting anything that had value and leaving nothing but debt in its place. And I would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for you meddling kids. Where are you? We got some work 